Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 22. Uh, it's been on my heart for a, oh, a while now to really look at or uh, uh, we'll do a sermon on the Lord's Supper. It's something that we do regularly together as a church, um, but I think it's something that is often, um, well, you know, when things are done regularly, they can often be taken for granted. And we can often miss the meaning of what we're actually doing. So today's going to be a topical talk. We're going to be looking at the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the passage I'm going to be reading today is from Luke chapter 22. As I read from this, though, um, have a real think about how this relates to the Old Testament reading we had a little earlier from Exodus chapter 12. So Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 7, and this is God's word. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy it is to be able to meet together today as your people. Lord, what a great joy it is to meet with brothers and sisters in Christ, and not just to meet with them, Lord, but to meet with you, the holy, true and living God. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we meditate on your word now, that you, we would hear you speak to us through your word. And Father, we pray that you would be with me, that uh, Lord, I would speak in a way that glorifies you and edifies each other. Lord, we commit this time into your hands and we ask for your blessing 
For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of the great tragedies, but historically, the Lord's Supper has been the most divisive doctrine in all of Christianity. The meal which was ironically supposed to reflect the unity that we have as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ has been the very thing which has caused the most disagreement and even hostility. For instance, it's still the official position of the Roman Catholic Church that if you don't believe that the bread and wine is literally changed into the flesh and blood of Jesus, then you are anathema. That is, you are eternally condemned to hell. That's how important it is to them. It's also one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper, uh, what they would call the Eucharist, is not only celebrated every week, if, but it is also the focus of every single Roman Catholic service or Mass. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic Mass, you would have noticed that the emphasis is not on the sermon, uh, which is called normally the homily, and it's just normally, hopefully, a short five-minute talk, but it's on the sacrament. Because it's, according to Roman Catholic theology, receiving the body and blood of Jesus, that his grace is infused into you and your righteous standing before God or what we would call our justification is gradually over time increased. What I wanted to do this morning, though, is to stop and consider, well, what does the Lord's Supper actually mean? This is obviously going to be more of a topical talk compared to what I would normally do. And so I'm going to pull together a number of biblical passages and hopefully try to give a more complete picture. Maybe the best way to start, though, is to briefly outline the four basic positions that Christians hold to. I'm pretty sure that you would have all had some experience with at least one of these. And for some of us, you might have even interacted with all four. The central question which each position wrestles with, though, is how does the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who has ascended into heaven, relate to the elements of the bread and the wine? All of these positions believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. They also all believe that the bread and wine is somehow related. The question is how? Clearly, there has to be some kind of interconnection. But there are a number of different answers which churches down throughout the centuries have given, and that's what we're going to look at. So first of all, there's the Roman Catholic position. As I said before, it's where the bread or the wine um, is being literally transformed into the flesh and the blood of Jesus. It's a process of what they call um, transubstantiation. And... What it means is that during the ritual of the Mass, the bread and the wine are so fundamentally changed through the priest and the, and the words that he says that they become the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. So much so that it 
It's no longer actually bread and wine. It only appears to be so. If you've ever done philosophy, this is based on Aristotelian philosophy, of substance and accidents. And so it appears to be one thing, but in reality, it's another. The Council of Trent um, says this, the whole substance of the bread and the wine is converted into Christ's flesh and blood. It's also why the minister in a Roman Catholic uh, uh, mass is referred to not as a pastor, but as a priest. And the place where the Eucharist is offered is not on the table, but literally, and this is really important, an altar. Because the priest is offering a very real sacrifice. The same sacrifice, they would say, which occurred at Calvary, but a sacrifice is occurring during the Mass. I was an altar boy growing up, uh, not a very good one, but committed nonetheless. <laughs> one of the greatest privileges that you could have was to go through the ranks of altar boys and where you were allowed to ring this, I can only describe it as a candelabra of bells, as the priest said the words of consecration. So, you know, normally a bell just goes tinkle, 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 tinkle. This thing was massive. It had like five or six uh, bells all connected. And so as you rang it, it slowly had this cacophony of sound. It was important to ring it at this moment when the priest says, he holds up what he would call the host. Um, again, a very important thing during the Eucharist, the bread. And he would say, this is my body. Or in Latin, and you have to pay careful attention to this, hocus ec corpus meum which, as you might think, where magicians today get their phrase, hocus pocus. It's from the Latin mass. The reason why they did that is because they were imitating the, what the priest did at the mass. For in Roman Catholic theology, something literally magical is occurring at that precise moment. A change, a, or as the Council of Trent would say, a conversion is taking place from bread and wine to flesh and blood. And so the bells are to represent that change. When it came to my turn for ringing these bells, for some reason I'd worked my way up. Uh, I can still remember the day vividly. Um, I was so proud to be able to you know, be the head altar boy and for some reason or other, I froze which meant that the priest was literally left hanging in the air, looking at me, scowling, saying, ring the bells. And I, and I so wanted to, I really did. I wasn't being mean or silly, I just I got stage fright and I, and I froze. It meant that I was never allowed to do it again <laughs> because it was such a serious breach of liturgy. Uh, there was another moment at a full nuptial mass where I was holding the full chalice of wine that had been consecrated, now Jesus' blood. And uh, I was walking across in front of the whole congregation and I could feel the, 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 the cord on my robe start to undo. And I thought, oh no, of all the times this could happen. And yeah, as a little child does, you think, what am I going to do? 
do I put the cup down? You know, do I fill up my robe really quickly and everybody laugh at me? And as the little kid does, I thought, I'll just walk really quickly. Big mistake. Because as I walked really quickly, I tripped. And you've got to imagine a full congregation of people gasping as I saved this cup, right? And I thankfully didn't spill a drop. But the priest was very clear to me afterwards that if I'd had, we would have had to rip up all of the carpet and have it burned. Because that was consecrated wine. It, had be- it was no longer wine. It had become Christ's blood. On the other side of things is what you might call, oh, I call it, the Sydney Evangelical, or it's historically known as the Anabaptist view, although not all Baptists believe this. This is the position that says, well, on the other side of things, the Lord's Supper is purely symbolic. The bread and the wine remain the bread and the wine, and the only thing that the Lord's Supper produces is a memory of what happened at the cross. In other words, Jesus is completely absent in that he is bodily in heaven from where one day he will return. And so celebrating the Lord's Supper is kind of like wearing a wedding ring or looking at a photo album. It's a deeply precious reminder of what Christ has done. Some evangelical churches I know would go even further and they would say that the Lord's Supper is even not even any longer commanded. We no longer have to do it. All you need is the promises of the gospel as, as is found in God's word. But as we saw in our Bible reading from Luke 22, Jesus explicitly tells us, doesn't he, to do this in remembrance of him. In between these two positions is what is called the Lutheran uh, position or one. On the one hand, it doesn't view the minister as being a priest who offers a sacrifice on the altar, but they also believe, uh, oh, sorry, I should say rather, they also believe that the bread and the wine always remain bread and wine, but they also don't believe that it's merely a symbol. Their position is called consubstantiation. It sounds, if that sounds similar to the Roman Catholic position, transubstantiation, that's because it is. For they believe that there are now four parts that are present in the Lord's Supper. There is bread and wine, but there is also flesh and blood. Martin Luther explained it like this. If iron is placed in a fire and heated, it glows. And in that glowing iron... Both the iron and the heat are present. Luther could never get beyond the emphatic declaration uh, of Jesus when he said, this is my body or this is my blood. For Luther, is meant is. (laughs) And there was no other way that you could legitimately understand it except to take Jesus' words literally. The fourth position is what I um, have called the Calvinist or Reformed position because it was the one adopted by John Calvin and most Presbyterian or Reformed churches. For Calvin, the bread and the wine always remained the bread and the wine and there was nothing on earth which changed. 
But, he said, there was a true spiritual communion which took place when you celebrated the Lord's Supper. And by the way, there's lots of Baptist churches that hold this position as well. The Holy Spirit, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we do that, we are actually united or communing with Christ by His Spirit. And that union was essentially spiritual. That through the Lord's Supper, we truly commune with our Lord. Calvin puts it like this. The radiance of Christ's Spirit imparts to us the communion of His flesh and blood as the sun, by shedding its rays, casts its substance on the earth and gives life and growth. So we're spiritually connected to the Lord Jesus. So there's no change to the elements of the bread and wine, but it's also not just a symbol. In fact, for Calvin, he actually even went further and said that we are so united with Christ that because you can't separate his divinity and his humanity, somehow or other, Calvin says, I can't explain it, but we are truly one with Christ in the heavenly realms, both physically and spiritually. But most Presbyterian or Reformed um, churches would just simply say, the communion that we enjoy with Christ is spiritual until he returns. But more on that in just a moment. Because you might be wondering at this point, especially with so many different options and different positions, well, what does the Bible actually say? And what I'd like to try and do next is to sum up the Bible's teaching in five distinct points, uh, which is similar, I guess, to my Presbyterian Pentagon again. As you can see from your sermon outlines, it's all about where you look. And there are five distinct areas of focus. The first is that in the Lord's Supper, we look back to what Christ has done. As Jesus commanded us in Luke 22, we do this in remembrance of him. And as such, it's a powerful and profound reminder of what Jesus did on the cross. That his body was broken and that his blood was spilt for us. And there is something, isn't there, even in the fact that you are given the bread and the cup in two distinct acts or movements because they were separated. It means that he has died. Uh, when I was growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, the blood of Jesus, or the cup, was seen as being too precious for any normal um, attendee or lay person to have. Only the priest or um, some nuns uh, were worthy of being able to drink from the cup. You were never allowed. You could only ever have the bread. But in fulfilment of the Passover, Jesus has become our sacrificial lamb, hasn't he? That's why those two, how those two Bible readings fit together. That just as the blood of a lamb was smeared over the door frames of people's houses and God's angel of destruction or his wrath passes over that house, so too now if you believe in the blood of Jesus smeared over the, the door frame or the wood of his cross, God's anger or judgment or condemnation because of our sin also passes over us. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. We are no longer under his judgment or his condemnation. We not only look back, though. We, second of all, we also look up. 
Now, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll find that not only do the Israelites also celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is in some ways quite surprising, right? But in so doing, they were also united with Christ, vertically, so to speak, in heaven, even before he came to earth. And this was obviously thousands of years before Jesus was actually born. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll start reading at verse 1. We read, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Notice what he says next. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And not only did they all experience baptism, but they all actually experienced the Lord's Supper. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And here's the mic drop moment, right? And that rock was Christ. Now, this is really incredible to get your head fully around. Because on one level, the Israelites were being supernaturally sustained physically as they journeyed through the wilderness. The Lord miraculously provided for them again and again and again when they had run out of food and out of water. Both, and notice this right, both water from a rock and manna which fell from the sky. That was a miracle. That was supernatural. They were fed on this manna every day. Well, except on the Sabbath, which was another miracle. Because it only went for six days and then it stopped. Then it went for six days and then it stopped. And this, this kind of divine provision followed a very precise six-day pattern. And that happened for over 40 years. But as incredible as all that is, to receive water from a rock and manna that literally falls from the sky, it pointed to an even deeper mystery still. And that is, it was Christ himself who was sustaining them. Even though it would be thousands of years until he came to earth, Jesus was sustaining them as they journeyed through the wilderness. And so just like us, they participated in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. They were not only all baptised into Moses when they passed through the sea, but they also all participated in the Lord's Supper. And in this sense, when we eat and we drink, we, like them, we look up to the Christ who is in heaven now and continues to sustain us as we go through the wilderness on our way to the promised land, you see? And this was not just a foreshadowing of what was to come, but as we'll see in just a moment, a real participation or a real spiritual fellowship with Christ. Because this, remember, is spiritual drink and spiritual food. Because celebrating the Lord's Supper is not just about looking back 
or even looking up, but also looking in. If you go down to verses 14 to 17 of chapter 10, I'll explain what I mean. Because the Lord's Supper is not just a symbol as in what you might call a bare sign. It also contains an inner spiritual reality. It's actually a spiritual event that Christ himself is present as we eat and drink by his Holy Spirit. Now, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, or literally in Greek, a koinonia, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation, once again, a koinonia, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Now, I don't think that partaking or the fellowship that Paul is talking about here is actually physical. I don't think we're actually literally eating Jesus' flesh and blood. As many have pointed out, that would be cannibalism. And it's frowned on in most cultures. (laughs) It's not that the bread and the wine is ever changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. But as with anything or anyone that you fellowship with, there is a real spiritual fellowship. And it's more than just an empty sign or symbol. Now, in saying that, it's a precious sign and symbol as to what Christ has done, but there's more. In fact, Paul goes on to talk about the inherent contradiction spiritually which occurs if you participate in an idol feast compared to if you participate in the Lord's Supper. Have a look at what he says in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate, there's that word again, or fellowship in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants, again, I do not want you to fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now, this, can I say, particularly from Christians that I've met from Asian backgrounds, is a very profound challenge for them to this day. That they cannot participate in some of the idol feasts that have to do with ancestor worship in their own families. There is an inherent contradiction because they are not empty rituals. You are not just remembering Nan and Pop from the past. There is a real spiritual fellowship going on. And the Bible says it will either be with God or it will be with Satan. And in the same way, when you and I participate in the Lord's table, we're not just fellowshipping with one another, although we'll get to that in just a moment. 
but we're actually fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is here with us. And we should know this, don't we? Because he promises that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, there he is. Now, the Lord's Supper is not just looking back to what Jesus has done. It is that. It's not just looking up vertically to where he is in heaven now, sustaining us, although it is that. And it's also not just looking into fellowship which we enjoy with Christ now, especially, can I say, when we celebrate the Lord's table. The fourth element is that it also involves looking around to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn over one chapter in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and I'll show you what I mean. This point's going to be a little bit longer, a warning straight up. This is the passage of Scripture which has the most to say about both the meaning as well as the implications of the Lord's Supper. And they are profound. There are a number of aspects in this chapter which are a little tricky to understand and leave more than a few people a bit confused. Paul begins his discussion in verse 17 where he talks about significantly there being divisions within the body of Christ. This is always a terrible tragedy and yet Paul says this in verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Having differences with one another is okay. The problem is when those differences turn into division. And yet, even then, Paul says, they have a way of revealing where somebody is at spiritually. Of who or maybe even what it is that they worship. More in that in just a moment. Because in the church at Corinth, it seems that they had extended the Lord's Supper to also include what many commentators or Christian theologians or scholars have called a Christian love feast. That is, a weekly meal where everybody brings a plate like a potluck and they all pitch in and they share, or at least hopefully they do. Because this was the problem. They were not willing to share with one another. And so some of the people in the church were gorging themselves to the point of getting drunk. And others, the poorer members of the congregation, were completely being left out, sitting off on the side and going home hungry. It's an unbelievably horrible situation. But Paul's solution, and you think, how do you address this pastorally? Well, Paul says, you've got to go back again and understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And he says this in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper... He took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we might just stop here for a moment because what Paul is saying here is just so incredible. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're actually proclaiming the gospel. You could even say that we're looking around and we're 
evangelizing one another with the good news of our salvation. Or another way of putting it, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the Passover, the true Passover, to what the original Passover pointed to. How then can we proclaim a gospel of reconciliation with God in one breath and then in the very next breath, Paul says, deny it by our actions? How could you say in the Lord's Supper, I'm united with you, God, praise you for all that you've done to reconcile me to yourself and then not be reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ? As you can imagine, the Lord rightly views this kind of rank hypocrisy very, very seriously. Just take a look at what Paul goes on to say in verses 27 to 32. Because Paul says God will hold us accountable to our actions, particularly as they relate in and around our celebrating the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, Therefore, with all that context in mind, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Because if you eat in an unworthy manner, you're actually sinning against Jesus and what he has done. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then Paul says this, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, died. Now it's really important to keep in mind the context of what Paul has just been saying. That's why it took so long to sort of build up to this point. Because it's really easy to misinterpret what he means here. For instance, he's not saying that if you don't have a proper theological understanding of how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, in the bread and the wine, whether it's physical or spiritual or some combination of both, then you're going to get weak and sick and maybe die. Most people assume that's what he means, but it's not. What Paul says in verse 22, no, sorry, 29 is the key here. And especially in understanding what the apostle does not say. Notice he says, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. He doesn't say anybody who eats and drinks without recognizing the body and blood of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself which, as we've just seen in the context, is a reference not to the body of Christ that is in heaven, but the body of Christ that is here on earth, that is, his church. In other words, if you're seeking to fellowship with Christ in the Lord's Supper, but you're out of fellowship with brothers or sisters in Christ, then God will hold you and I accountable. He will discipline us for not being willing to show the same love and the same forgiveness to each other which he has first lavished on us. Does that make sense? This was so important in my first congregation in Wee War that one of the elders exhorted me 
that every month where we had the Lord's Supper, I had to give a word of exhortation the week before, encouraging members in the congregation to make sure they kept short accounts. Because he said, Mark, if you say it to us on Sunday morning, it's too late, and then some of us are going to miss out on the Lord's Supper. But if you give us a week's notice, at least then we've got the chance to try and put things right before church on Sunday. As we've been looking at the book of Job over the past uh, couple of months, we keep coming up, don't we, against this false way of relating to God called transactional theology. And that is you always get what you deserve, either good or bad. God's like a cosmic slot machine that has to work. Good works go in, blessing comes out. Sin goes in, judgment comes out. As we've just seen, it's not always true. God's bigger than that. Job wasn't suffering because he sinned and the Lord Jesus definitely didn't suffer because he sinned. But that doesn't mean, and here's I think the thing to remember, it doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't discipline those he loves. Because he does. Paul says in verse 31 and 32, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are, and, and notice, pay careful attention to this. We are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. You see, those that trust in Jesus have crossed over from death to life and will not come into judgment in that ultimate condemnation sense. But that doesn't mean you can't be disciplined. Because like any good, loving father, he does. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it's important that we look around and we reflect on the unity that we have in Christ. In fact, I was talking to somebody this week and they were saying, for them, this is the most precious thing about the Lord's Supper. It's a practice I, I think you used to have before I got here, that you would come to the front to receive the Lord's Supper. Now, the elders come to you to give you the bread and the wine. There's no set way of doing it. You can do it lots of different ways. But this person was saying it was so good that when you came to the front... You were not just coming to the Lord, you were looking around and you're going, it's my brothers and sisters in Christ here. I'm not alone. They trust in Jesus just like I do. What a precious thing. We're all sinners who've been saved by grace. And therefore we should sow the same love, forgiveness and mercy which we ourselves have received. Now there's a fifth and a final element which is also, I think, the one that's most overlooked. And that is when we participate in the Lord's Supper, there is one other action, and that is we look forward to what is to come. Please turn over to Revelation chapter 21. The whole chapter is a very beautiful and precious passage, but I'm just going to read to us from verses 1 to 6. It says this, Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Ah, oh, this is beautiful. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning 
or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who sees seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The passage goes on, but the point I'm simply trying to make is, you know what, every time you and I celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're actually looking forward to the heavenly banquet, which is yet to come. It's like a deposit guaranteeing what we're going to one day participate in and enjoy. When the consequences of sin and the fall will be no more and everything in all of creation will be wrapped up in perfect unity. Now, if you stop and think about it, all of those simple but profound truths are contained in that little meal. A piece of broken bread and a sip of juice. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? John Calvin used to say that in a perfect world, you wouldn't need things like sacraments. You could just trust that the Lord God Almighty was always going to do what he promised to do. But Calvin says, because of our weakness, God gives us covenant signs and seals to assure us of what he has promised. He sets rainbows in the clouds to confirm that he will never destroy the world again with a flood. He gives us baptism of a covenantal promise that he will wash away the guilt of our sin. And he gives us the Lord's Supper to assure us outwardly of what we have already received inwardly. This is why people like Augustine define sacraments as being visible signs of God's invisible grace. Now, as I said before, they're not just bare signs, but that's a precious sign, isn't it? For all of you who are married here, particularly you blokes, right? You want to see how precious a sign can be. Take off your wedding ring and play with it. And just count the seconds down to where your wife says to you, you might put that back on. <laughs> There's something precious about that sign because it reflects your relationship. So as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sunday, on the time of the year where we specifically remember Christ's death and resurrection, let's look back, let's look up, look in, look around, and look forward. Let's rest in the undeserved love that the Father has lavished upon us. But as Paul warned too, let's not eat or drink in an unworthy manner. Let's show to each other the same love Mercy and forgiveness, which he's first lavished on us. Yes? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your love. We are so undeserving and yet you've lavished your love on us. And we pray that in the same way we would lavish your love on each other. Lord, we can't do this by ourselves. We are sinful people and so we ask for the 
the, the power of your spirit to be able to respond in this way. Lord, as we come together next Sunday on Easter, we pray that we will be just so filled with joy at receiving again the sure and certain promises of your love for us in Christ. And Lord, may you become more and more and more precious to us and what you have done more and more real to us. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for hearing us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.